Why do I read? Why do I have conversations? Why do I travel? Why do I have to go to school? Why do I pay attention? Why do I pay attention? Because I want to be amused. Because I want to get outside my comfort zone. But mostly. 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 Mostly because. Because I want to find, find out, out stuff. stuff. Find out stuff. Find out stuff. <laughs> because I want you to tell, tell me, me something, something I, I don't know. know. Did you know, for instance, how much better life has gotten over the past couple centuries? If we go back 200 years, then we have basically the entire world population living in material conditions that we would call extreme poverty. And that share has come down so that today is roughly at 10% of the world population. Some of these gains are well known and well appreciated. Life expectancy has doubled globally. Child mortality has come down massively. But other gains are less known, less appreciated. In 1800, Maybe nine out of 10 people in the world were illiterate. And now in the latest data, we see eight out of 10 people are able to read and write. Not perfect, but we're getting there. Welcome to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. I'm Stephen Dubner, and that was the Oxford economist Max Roser helping us introduce the theme of tonight's show, Getting There. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is live journalism wrapped in a game show tonight. We're coming to you from Thalia Hall in Chicago, Illinois. And we have put together for you a phenomenal panel. So would you please welcome the commissioner of Chicago's Department of Aviation, Ginger Evans, the hip-hop artist and political organizer, Che Rhymefest-Smith, and the comedian, Mary Catherine Curran. Let's begin with Ginger Evans. Here's what we know about you so far, Ginger. We know that you grew up on a farm in Colorado, that you went on to study engineering, and that you worked on coal mines and energy projects until getting into the airport building business. We know that now, as the commissioner of the Department of Aviation in Chicago, you manage one of the world's busiest airport systems with more than 100 million passengers a year. So Ginger Evans, tell us something we don't know about you. Well, uh, I had a very interesting experience uh, 16 years ago now. Uh, 9-11 happened. Of course, it was September. And Congress, uh, before they left for the, the holidays, passed a new law saying that in one year, all the checkpoints in all 450 airports in the United States would be federalized. So uh, I was in Atlanta in about March, I think, and I got a phone call, and they said, come to Washington. I said, why? They said, we'll tell you when, we, when you get here. That's never a good uh, situation, yeah. is it? Yeah. So I got there. They directed me down to the lower level of the old U.S. DOT building, and there was this vacant room that they'd cordoned off, very dusty, very dark, folding tables, and they had called in people from the private sector to basically stand up this organization. Now, it's March, so now we've got you know maybe seven months to meet this one-year deadline, so we did things like I would, I would call my best guy in Texas and said, Tom, go to Alaska, hand out uniforms, work your way down the coast, call me when you get to San Diego. So it's uh, basically what you're saying, Ginger, is that thanks to you, we have the transportation, right? It's I, the TSA, yeah. All right, we're, go- we're gonna remember that as the night goes yeah. on. Ginger, very happy to have you. 
Our next panelist, Che Rhymefest-Smith, what do we know, sir, about you? Well, you've been a musician, a writer, and a producer, and that you've got the Oscar, the Golden Globe, and two Grammys to prove it. We know that you've collaborated off and on with your childhood friend Kanye West, that you've rapped for British Prime Minister David Cameron, and that you were nearly elected to the Chicago City Council. We know you are now acting in your first film, The Public, with Alec Baldwin, and we know you've got a son named Solomon, Mm -hmm. which shows what good taste you have, because I've also got a son (laughs) named Solomon. So, uh, so Che, tell us something. Who's the mother? (laughs) (laughs) We may have something else in common. (laughs) So, Che, uh, I'm a little scared now to say this, but tell us something else we don't know about you. (laughs) You you know... My first uh, album that I did on a major label uh, called Blue Collar was actually themed after the over 50 jobs that I've worked in my lifetime until I got that record deal. Actually, when I found out that Clive Davis had signed me to uh, his Sony record imprint, I was actually at work, and I quit. Oh, there you go. There you go. Jay, really happy to have you here tonight. (laughs) <laughs> Excellent. And finally, Mary Catherine Curran. We know that you are a member of the improv comedy troupe Virgin Daiquiri. We know that you performed for four months on a cruise ship with Second City, but usually you're performing in venues all around the great town of Chicago, Illinois. So, Mary Catherine Curran, keeping in mind tonight's theme, getting there, tell us something we don't know about you. Well, when you are a female in a big city, uh, you tend to be, quote-unquote, targeted by gentlemen who like to um, expose themselves to you. Uh, and my tactic for dealing with uh, any sort of man who is trying to be aggressive towards me is to try to out-crazy them um, <laughs> or to scream as loudly as I can uh, or make fun of their penis. Um, that is my personal tactic. Now, do you ever get in the habit of, um, of repelling like that and just do it preemptively then? So Sometimes, that maybe, yeah. So that then you become the crazy person without the pervert? Does that ever I, happen? I'm truly, I think I'm close to being that crazy woman anyway, so. D- despite that, we're so happy to have you here, <laughs> Mary Catherine Curran. <laughs> All right, it is time now to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Here's how it will work. Guests from the audience will come on stage and try to impress you panelists with their IDKs, their I don't knows. Once you've heard all of them, you're going to pick a winner based on three simple criteria. Number one, did they tell you something you truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? Now, to help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker, Jesse Dukes. Jesse is a journalist at WBEZ, the awesome public radio station here in Chicago. He produces and reports for the show Curious City. So, Jesse, our theme is getting there. What makes you think you're the right person to fact-check this episode? Well... Last year, for Curious City, I re-reported a story about Chicago's 1992 tunnel flood, also called the Great Chicago Flood, in which these small underground train tunnels flooded with river water, which flooded dozens of basements in the loop. And I learned something that many reporters at the time had missed, which was that those tunnels were really not supposed to be there. 
the company that built the tunnels had more or less defrauded the city of Chicago. They had a, a license to build conduit, which we usually think of as like a pipe, but not big enough for a train mm. to drive through it. It seems like the whole time what they really wanted to do was build an underground train system that would connect a bunch of the buildings in the loop. So um, when you go back and you look at uh, how those tunnels got there, um, there's always some good old-fashioned Chicago skullduggery. Good to know. Jesse Dukes, thank you so much. We're really happy to have you here tonight. It is time now to play Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tonight's theme, remember, getting there from point A to B. Would you please welcome our first contestant, Malcolm McIver. All right, Malcolm, nice to have you. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. Sure. I'm a professor at Northwestern University, where I do research at the intersection of neuroscience, evolution, and bio-inspired robotics. Neuroscience, evolution, and bio-inspired robotics. So I'm ready, Malcolm. So are our panelists tonight, Ginger Evans, Che Reimfest-Smith, and Mary Catherine Kern. So what do you know that's worth knowing that you think we don't know? Sure. So 400 million years ago, uh, there were only bugs up on land. And 50 million years after that... There were four-legged creatures that had evolved from fish uh, scurrying about the countryside. So um, those animals led to dinosaurs and mammals like us. Um, My question for you is, what do you think was the most important body part in getting uh, animals to take that leap up onto land? My first thought is feet, right? Because they... That would, to me, make the most sense. But I'm, I'm feeling like that's too easy of mm. a response. So it has to be something a little more complicated than that. Um, well, like, if, 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 if I'm lost in the ocean and, I'm, and I get to shore, what, what am I going <laughs> to do first? I'm going to use my arms to mm-hmm. try to climb. And so I'm thinking climbing out of water mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. takes... Uh, the arms are the most important body part mm-hmm. to pull you out. I'm thinking it's more about how do you get your oxygen. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, which is essential for every living creature then and now. So gills would be what their lungs would mm-hmm. be, I'm, I'm thinking. Um, Are you changing your answer? I am not. I'm sticking with legs. That, well, gills, I'm, say, I'm, I'm connecting the dots. You kind of kind of stole gills from Ginger. Because Ginger's know, I not... To, I mean, that no. makes a lot of sense. I'm if you want to go from feet. water to land, breathing would seem to be a pretty... Uh, mm, mm. But Malcolm, you're giving that, you're giving that the fish yeah. eye. That, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's not, it's connected. It's connected. So, mm-hmm. All right, let's, hear, let's so, hear the real story, Malcolm. Right, so yeah. until about a month ago when we published this study, um, most of the work on this problem has focused on uh, how, did, how did fish fins evolve into limbs. Mm-hmm. I was curious about how sensory abilities might have had a role in the leap up onto land. What we found was just before animals uh, came up onto land, their eyes tripled in size. That was actually before complete limbs had formed with fingers and toes. So uh, at the same time, what happened was the eyes migrated from the sides of the head where you see them in trout or salmon to the top of the head on raised bony prominences on eyebrows. Uh, And so you can think of a crocodile. That's exactly what was happening. So what we think was happening was uh, these animals were looking out over the water surface, and we, we've shown uh, that vision is amplified by about a factor of 150 when you're looking through air versus through water. 
And we think what happened is that they then saw the smorgasbord of bugs up on land, free for the taking, oh. as easy to eat as popcorn at a movie theater. <laughs> and so all this abundance of uh, bug popcorn might have been what fueled the evolution of complete limbs and getting us up, or at least our ancestors, up onto land. Wow. So I'm curious, did you go to the AMC movie vault to get these pictures of these things? I mean, how, how would you know? So we surveyed 60 specimens right before and after the transition onto land. Then we measured the sockets, the eye sockets, and we can infer eye size. So that's how we figured out the tripling. Going back to your point about oxygen, though, is right at this time in Earth's history, in the Devonian, there was this big dip in oxygen levels. And these animals uh, evolved lungs, and they were breathing through these holes, which have become eustachian tubes, our ears, basically. So you can imagine them surfacing for oxygen at the same time as getting this, this great vision of, of all the food up on land. How, how does that work with, with the fact that I keep looking at the sky, but I haven't grown wings yet. You haven't grown <laughs> wings yet. Yeah. Like, Give it a few hundred million years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Impressive. But persuade us that this isn't just a theory that y- you might be making up. Like, we're not smart enough to know how to challenge you. Like, right. how, how, what's your level of confidence that this might actually be real? Okay, so the tripling in, in, in eye size or orbit size, socket size, is absolutely clear. So is the going from the size of the head to the very top. Uh, so the inference that they were looking at bugs on land comes about because we show if the eyes had tripled in water, it gave them this microscopic increment in performance. And we know that eyes are very, very expensive organs. Most animals that, say, uh, evolve into cave habitats lose them within a few generations because they're so metabolically expensive to fuel. So the tripling of eye size for a very small increment in performance that would have occurred if they were only looking in water doesn't really make a lot of Mm. sense. So Mm. the combination of the fact that they went to the top of the skulls and tripled in size and that that's very costly uh, and that they get this huge increment in range if they're looking through air but not through water all sort of sums to this. Stephen, I think this makes perfect sense. It's it's the uh, the prehistoric version of TSA's "See Something, Say Something." <laughs> it's see something, eat something. <laughs> Before we finish up with Malcolm, let's check in with our fact checker Jesse Dukes. Uh, Jesse, how legit is this that the evolution of eyes perhaps helped turn fish into land animals? A flag was thrown up for me when I heard the thing about eyes getting bigger only possibly relating to being able to see outside the water because I know that there are some fish like the big eye tuna, so named for its big eyes. But then I remembered something that Malcolm said about the orientation of the eyes and I took a quick look at massive increase in visual range preceded the origin of terrestrial vertebrates (laughs) and I was happy (laughs) to see that the fossils that Malcolm and his colleagues studied were a kind of fish that, in fact, does show that the eye sockets are on the head. So it does seem to check out, and, you know, it was peer-reviewed and things like that. Um, (laughs) You're good with it, Jesse. I think I'm good with it. Jesse, thank you, and Malcolm, thank you so much for playing Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Great job. Uh, Would you please welcome our next contestant, Kathleen McCarthy. Hi, Kathleen. Why don't you uh, tell us who you are, what you do? 
I am the director of collections and head curator at the Museum of Science and Industry, which means I take care of the museum's 35,000 artifacts. All right, what do you have for us tonight, Kathleen? So one of Star Trek's most beloved characters, Captain John Luke Picard, who is played by Sir Patrick Stewart, his name was inspired by two identical twin brothers, Auguste and Jean Picard, who were pioneers in flight. What was the Picard brothers' vehicle of choice? I I like motorcycles. (laughs) And when I ride my motorcycle, it feels like I'm flying. Hmm. And and so I would say their vehicle of choice would have been a bike with a motor on it. Hmm. Because I don't think they had motorcycles. They had bikes with motors. Uh Hmm. Certainly other pioneers of flight, like the Wright brothers, got their start with bicycles, which isn't that Mm -hmm. much different from a motorcycle. But that actually is not correct. I'm always wrong. So a lot of people uh, studied kites and movements of kites um, uh, as part of the development of that understanding of hydraulic lift. So they did go up high. That's absolutely certain. But you're wrong. Keep going. That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> we, we have to remember they're French, yes. right? So there's probably some champagne involved. Maybe some bubbles, <laughs> some balloons, you know, something... Um, now, okay, truly, I was thinking something along the lines of, like, a paraglide, but then I, I started to think that maybe it was some sort of, like, a ski lift type of thing. But, you know, that's... Actually, you're kind of getting warm. Thank you. So. Mm-hmm. Um, no. how, yeah. how warm, Kathleen? Because I feel like uh, you're, you're smiling and you're encouraging these answers, but <laughs> yeah, so, I feel sorry. like we're not that close yet, or am I wrong? <laughs> Why don't, why don't, there's a, a, a vehicle of choice, you're saying, that the right. Picard brothers uh, uh, used, right? Yeah. So do you want to tell us? Yeah, so um, Auguste, Jean, and Jean's wife, Jeanette, were all pioneers in high-altitude ballooning. I and knew it. So, <laughs> so with the Picard brothers designed an enclosed spherical gondola, which... That's the word I was looking for lift. that I couldn't yeah. think of. Thank you, Kathleen. Yeah, and... Uh, <laughs> And really, quite literally, an explosive launch technique that led us into the space program that we have today. And so, Auguste was the first human being to reach the stratosphere. And his brother, he wanted to actually do research on cosmic rays. So, it was up to Jeanette, his wife, to learn to be a balloon pilot. So, they were having trouble getting potential funders. Like, National Geographic thought it was too dangerous for a woman to participate. But they managed to raise the funds and they had backers like uh, Henry Ford, invited them to the Ford Airport in Detroit to use their hangar, and he even invited Orville Wright out to meet them. So in October 1934, with Jeanette piloting, Jean doing research, accompanied by their pet turtle, they took off (laughs) successfully for the stratosphere, sending 11 miles high. So now to put that in perspective, when you're in a commercial airliner, you can fact check me on this one, uh, you go about 35,000 feet. Well, Jean and Jeanette went over 57,000 feet in a seven foot diameter metal balloon. So with that flight, Jeanette became the first woman to reach the stratosphere and she held the altitude record for a female pilot for nearly three decades until there was a female Russian cosmonaut who went higher into space. How'd they land? 
Roughly. (laughs) (laughs) And they landed in a tree, uh, crushing the bottom of the gondola, and that essentially became its last flight. Did the turtle survive? That is important Mm. to me. The turtle did survive. So interesting, Kathleen. Uh, Jesse Dukes, the fabulous flying Picard family, what more can you tell us? Balloon stuff's all true. Um, <laughs> Jeanette, she was, she was American, um, and actually the Picard brothers were Swiss, French-Swiss, not actually French. All right, you're disqualified, Kathleen, <laughs> sorry. Um, Jeanette was also one of the first female Episcopalian priests. Wow. Um, and Auguste, uh, the brother-in-law, he invented the, I don't know how to say this, it's Bathyscaphe. Yes. Now you're fact-checking me. But it was, <laughs> it was like a submarine that, that was designed to basically break records for how deep people could go yeah. into the water. So um, the brother and sister-in-law went high, and he went low. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, but the most important thing is the origin of the name of Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Um, and this is controversial. It is. Because the only person who knows the true answer to this died, uh, and that's Gene Roddenberry, of course. And there is another Picard whose name is spelled the right way, Jean-Félix Picard, who was a 17th century astronomer who was the first person to figure out how big the Earth is. And I like the Jean-Félix theory because the spelling is correct, and (laughs) most importantly, think about what the Enterprise did they were always going around and measuring planets. Um, your theory is strong. I like my theory. Yes. <laughs> I like them both. Thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for playing. Great job. <laughs> Wonderful. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Vinit Aurora? Come on up, Vinit. Hi there, Vinit. Uh, what's your story? What do you do? I'm a medical doctor at the University of Chicago, and I'm also a sleep researcher, and I help our resident physicians who work very long shifts actually deal with sleep deprivation. Sounds good. What do you have for us tonight then, Vinit? What can you do before a 30-minute power nap that is a proven way of making you feel refreshed right after your nap? So I have my thing that I do before I take a nap, but yeah. that I'm going to keep to myself. Does so, it, um... As a medical doctor, I'll say that those are all healthy things to okay. c- continue, mm-hmm. but not the answer. So, yeah. Uh, Thank yeah. you. I, I think it must by necessity involve tequila. <laughs> well, so that is a myth. A lot of people think about alcohol as a way that puts you to sleep. In fact, what alcohol does is it disrupts your sleep. So you might actually have that early morning wake up or Jesse, 3 a.m., 4 a.m. wake up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so can I ask, can I back up for one second? You're saying what can you do before a nap to make the nap better, but isn't the nap good already? Or? Well, this one of the dangers of a nap is what we call sleep inertia. And so this actually helps counteract the sleep inertia, which is the grogginess that you feel mm. upon waking. Che, are you a napper? Well, I'm a rapper. Um, <laughs> but we do take naps. Um, and since I've been wrong the last two times, um, I've decided that I don't care anymore. <laughs> and I'm going to say what I feel. What I feel is that you know, whenever I, I cuddle with my wife, I just, I go to sleep so well and wake up so refreshed. And, and so I would say spooning. 
Well, I don't. Is what, what, what I don't know if there's any randomized <laughs> control yourself. trials on that, uh, but that's not the answer either. Oh, although I would I endorse that as a positive, healthy thing to do. Um, so the answer actually is to have a cup of coffee, and it sounds really counterintuitive, but hear me out. Uh, the reason <laughs> is that. Um, People are really concerned about taking a nap after you've been up all night because perhaps you're just going to like take an eight-hour nap, right? How can you make sure it's 30 minutes? So if you have a cup of coffee right before you take your nap, then you'll wake up feeling more refreshed because the caffeine specifically targets the sleep inertia or that grogginess where you wake up and you actually want to fall back asleep and your judgment and um, decision-making is impaired. And so um, this is what in my field we call a caffeine nap. Uh, one of the things that uh, we do for our resident physicians who have to work very long shifts, upwards of 30 hours, um, is that they're at risk um, when they drive from point A to point B of drowsy driving. And so um, they're not alone because actually half of Americans have admitted to drowsy driving. And so this is a real public health problem because if you drive behind the wheel after 24 hours of wakefulness, it's actually equivalent to driving at 0.1% blood alcohol level, which is past the legal driving limit in all states. And so a lot of people actually try different things to tackle drowsy driving including things like rolling down the window so cold air is coming on their face, turning up the radio really loud, or pinching themselves. But none of those actually are proven to work. And the thing that works the most is to actually avoid sleep loss. But obviously, that's not a really um, a good option for the doctors that work in our hospitals. And so, um, so a good backup plan is a caffeine nap. Mm. Wow. Is this something where you can tell your employer that you have to get off work early so you're not driving drowsy? Yeah, so... Like, good bosses don't let employees drive drowsy. Right, yes. right. Well, actually, <laughs> it's really about friends don't let other friends drive drowsy because you are a terrible judge of your own sleepiness level. So <laughs> studies of anesthesia residents actually show that 50% of the time they actually fell asleep on the job, they reported being awake. So I often say to our residents that if you see your friend nodding off in lecture, that's not a boring lecture. That person should not be driving home. And in our hospital, uh, because of uh, concerns of car accidents, we actually pay through a taxi cab fund or a rideshare fund any resident who is too um, impaired to drive can actually get a reimbursed for their cab ride home and back to work. Well, so I'm going to stop waiting until I see the monkey on a roller coaster when I'm driving. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And I'm like, maybe I should pull over. No, yeah. right. So you should pull over and definitely take a Wait, nap. You, and you, if you, you can pull over at a Starbucks, it's even better. So. Yeah. so you say that as though other people see monkeys on roller coasters. Is I that, is that know, the case? It, just, it doesn't seem like that's the normal road conditions and stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesse Dukes, the caffeine-powered power nap. Um, what do you say? I, I want to propose a name for what you're calling the caffeine nap, which is the Waylon Jennings nap, because it reminds me of a technique that the legendary country singer had when he would be partying for a very long period of time, and he would need to wake up the next day, and he would ar neatly arrange a certain controlled stimulant on mm. his alarm clock, sleep for about three hours, <laughs> wake up. Yes. Administer the stimulant, yes. yeah. fall back to sleep, and then he'd wake up again in 10 minutes, like raring to go make yes. some more country music. Yes, so that music. is a stimulant version of a caffeine right. nap that is not medically endorsed. Right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
But as far as this caffeine thing, I, I did, I, I believe you said that caffeine takes uh, a while to kick in? 30 minutes. Mm. That's onset of 30 minutes. It lasts for four to six I hours. See. Well, I did find a recent study that shows that some people had responded to caffeine in as fast as 10 minutes. That is uh, true. So, so, so the caffeine nap, yeah, it's, it's sort of the average onset is 30 minutes. Right. So that's why we recommend the caffeine nap. But certainly it depends on your ability to metabolize caffeine. But, uh, and so there could be, what, fast metabolizers out right. there. So, Vinny Aurora, excellent stuff. Thank, Thank you. you so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. It is time now for a very quick break. When we return, more contestants will make our panelists tell us something we don't know. If you'd like to be a contestant on a future show or attend one, please visit tmsidk.com. You can follow us on social media at tmsidk underscore show. We will be right back. Welcome back to Tell Me Something I Don't Know. My name is Stephen Dubner. Our panelists tonight, Ginger Evans, Che Reimfest-Smith, and Mary Catherine Curran. And our theme, you'll recall, is getting there. To that end, earlier tonight, we asked our live audience here in Chicago a simple question. What is your worst travel story ever? Panelists, I'd love each of you to read one reply. Ginger Evans, you first. Got robbed by strippers in Paris next door to the Moulin Rouge and was told to work in a peep show to pay off debts incurred. (laughs) All right, Jay, what do you have? After forgetting my ID and traveling with only my Costco card, my two-year-old threw up on me, and then the airline lost my luggage. (laughs) Mary Catherine, what do you have there? I was taking an overnight train to Vienna, and the unhelpful customer service rep had canceled our tickets. Out of hope, we boarded the train and handed the German-speaking conductor our reservation. He put us in a room and handed us little bags before wishing us good night. In the bag, a bottle of Prosecco, some chocolate, and a note saying the bags had been prepared and packaged by the Vienna Association for the Mentally Challenged. So that doesn't sound like the worst travel no. story. That sounds all right. All right, it is time to get back to our game. Would you please welcome our next contestant, Karen Smilowitz. <laughs> hey, Karen, uh, where are you from? What do you do? I'm an industrial engineering and management sciences professor at Northwestern University. Okay, very good. What do you have for us tonight, Karen? So Dennis Kometo of Kenya sent the current men's world marathon record of two hours, two minutes, and 57 seconds in the Berlin Marathon on September 28, 2014. So there have been other world marathon records set in London and here in Chicago, but in recent years, the Berlin Marathon has had the most world records. The Boston Marathon, which is a very famous course, has no official world records. So my question is, why does Berlin lead in world records for the marathon? I'm wondering if it has something to do with oxygen again. Boston is at a low uh, altitude, and Berlin is kind of moderate. It's a good answer. Well, and very wrong, it sounds like, yeah. (laughs) Well, I figure after Jesse Owens beat Hitler in the Olympics... (laughs) Think it's just karma? The Germans realized they had to change the clocks. And so the time... Uh, for the Berlin <laughs> marathon has to be different than the time for the other marathon. I, I hadn't thought about that one. 
Um, I'm also big on conspiracy theories, but for me, I'm thinking of the terrain. Maybe something Boston's a little more hilly. Um, I personally don't remember what Boston is like because I've never been there. Because <laughs> um, running uphill is harder than running on a straight, flat surface. Well, I, Mary Catherine's onto something, though. The, the course has to have something to do with it. I mean, there are obviously there are very tough courses, and right. there are courses that are you know the right friction and the right uh, the right. Have you noticed Great. that she shakes her head yes to everything we say? <laughs> and, Is anyone in the neighborhood or yeah, right there on are it? Some, it, it yeah. There are many reasons, and there are some that are in the neighborhood. All right. You want to tell us the, uh, the full reason you're thinking of? Sure, sure. So the change in elevation is one. But then again, like I said, Chicago's flat. Um, London is flat. And yet Berlin dominates. Uh, another is weather. Um, the elite runners, you want to make sure the elite runners are all at your major events, and all four of these events have the elite runners there. Um, what, where Berlin is different is it's not just um, how flat the course is, but you have to think about the turns in the course. So when you're running, it's a lot easier to run fast in a straight line or along a smooth curve. So if you looked at the Berlin course, it kind of goes in and out. So there are turns, but the angles of the turns are much softer, and that allows you to run faster. Um, so one of the things that we're looking at in Northwestern is how do you optimize marathon courses? And so the best thing you could do is just go up and down Lakeshore Drive because that's nice and flat and fast, but you also want to do things like show off the city, Lincoln Park, Chinatown, and you also want to make sure that you have a good experience for the spectators. One other thing is you want to make sure you're close to hospitals um, during the course. For obvious reasons, because yes. people are puking and dying when it, they run. You want to be close, Which yeah. is why I don't run, because you Same. puke and die. Right, yeah. right, yeah. right. But the challenge there is during the marathon, the course is blocked off. So not only are people in the marathon puking and dying, but the general public does, right? So you want to make sure that you don't lock the hospitals in so only the people in the marathon can go to mm. the marathon. So it's a really neat optimization problem of how do you factor in all of these, these issues. So you're involved in an effort to optimize the Chicago Marathon course or various courses? So, so our research looks at marathons in general, but since we're here in Chicago, we've been partnering with the Chicago Marathon. And so we look at um, kind of the broader issue. Obviously, we want to keep the marathon course fast, but more focusing on this access to the hospitals. But it's been really neat with the marathon, you know, being there on race day with Kerry Pankowski, who's the head of the marathon here, and watching him watch the lead runners and really wanting a world record. And you could just, like, dope everybody, right? Wouldn't that be a... <laughs> True. Wow, so interesting. Uh, Jesse Dukes, um, how to make a fast marathon course. How's this sound to you? It's all true. One of the reasons Boston hasn't had any records, their course is ineligible for world records. And that's because it's basically a point-to-point course. And there's a rule, basically says the starting point and the ending point have to be relatively close to one another. It's 50% of the race length. Right, and there's fights over whether it should be 50 or 30%, 25% in certain cities. But... um. One of the things that does is it keeps you from going the same direction the entire time. So if you have prevailing winds or like a long downhill, it keeps you from being able to take advantage of that. So if Chicago wanted, you could send the runners south on Lakeshore Drive and then bring them back up north to get near the starting point more inland. So what you'd have is you'd have a stronger tailwind on the way south and then the headwind would be weakened by all the buildings uh, blocking the wind. I think that's a great idea. Great job, Jesse. Thank you. And great job, Karen. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Would you please welcome our final contestant of the evening, Brendan Keyberg. 
Okay, Brendan, uh, what's your story? What do you do? Well, I'm a particle physicist at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory in Batavia, Illinois, where I look for evidence of new particles in the universe. So I can't wait to hear what you have to tell us. I can't guarantee we're going to understand any of it, but uh, why don't you give us a shot, okay? All right. So the electron has a cousin that's much heavier and unstable called the muon. I have a heavy, unstable cousin. His name is Marvin. I do as well. uh, Yeah. I think I'm the heavy, unstable cousin in my family. It runs in all the families. So at Fermilab, the muon G-2 experiment studies the precise way that this particle interacts with the quantum world around us. And by doing that, we hope to detect evidence of previously undiscovered particles. Now, uh, to do this experiment, we need to store these muons in an enormous 50-foot superconducting electromagnet. Fortunately... Uh, Such a magnet existed at Brookhaven National Laboratory in New York, and in 2013, we decided to transport this magnet from Brookhaven to the new experiment at Fermilab. It's 50 feet in diameter, it weighs 15 tons, and we had to keep it really, really well aligned. We couldn't let it flex or bend by more than an eighth of an inch over its 50-foot diameter. So, my question for you is how did we bring the electromagnet from New York to Illinois? Um, that's so easy. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I know this. So basically, <laughs> the aliens that helped the Egyptians build the pyramids. My joke answer, but also real, is just a bunch of people held it and carried it across. <laughs> from New York, just like very gently walking and gingerly like this for three weeks. Um, <laughs> so, um, so Brendan, two very compelling answers thus far: <laughs> aliens and uh, by hand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Ginger, um, who happens to have an engineering um, well, degree, a couple of them. I'm thinking New York, Chicago, the obvious uh, route and mechanism for something large and heavy. Uh, is uh, through, the, through the Great Lakes. Um, for your deflection problem, uh, you need a, a fairly sophisticated support system uh, that would uh, provide you know, a rigid layer for the magnet itself and then some sort of gel or something else that would absorb uh, the shock uh, so that that deflection wouldn't translate into the, a Dr. the actual Scholes unit. insert. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan, Brendan you, you look to be nodding appreciatively at Ginger's answer. Uh, all of them. There are components of all of the answers in the story. <laughs> all right. So, uh, Ginger, that was really one of the plans that we had from the very beginning. Um, so the labs are about 1,000 miles apart. It turned out that the journey that we ended up taking was actually over three times as long. So you were right on with the answer about building a rigid exoskeleton to hold everything in place to keep it from flexing. Um, but then what we did is we brought it into the air very temporarily, and we set it down on three canisters on a barge. We actually went down south around uh, the tip of Florida, across the Gulf of Mexico, and up the water system to Illinois. And eventually, we got it to Lamont, and we put it on a specialized trailer that had 64 wheels, and it took up an entire three lanes of the highway. So in the middle of the night, we shut down the highway and barely squeezed it uh, through one of the open road tolling stations and delivered it to to Fermilab. Wow. Wow. And did you plug it in yet? (laughs) 
Yeah, so we, we did that in 2013. By 2015, we plugged in the electromagnet and turned it on and saw that everything was working and we've been building the experiment. And just this spring, we started taking data, looking for these new particles in the universe. Fantastic. You know, I think... Chris Christie could have used that as an excuse. That's so true for the bridge. Like, we yeah. were moving a secret magnet, and I had to shut the highway down. Yeah. <laughs> Jesse Dukes, uh, moving the gigantic muon magnet halfway across the country. You find any problems with Brendan's story? Uh, the it happened. There are photos. Um, <laughs> um, and but I, the one thing I did figure out is that the muon is kind of like got to be one of the most boring subatomic particles. Like the work that you do does look really interesting. You're looking for other things. Um, but the muon itself is just sort of like a fat electron. Is that a fair characterization, fat electron? Yeah, it, it's uh, 200 times as heavy and, uh, and, and it decays. And since we've studied it really well, we understand what it should do. And so we can use it as a really precise probe of the mm. things that we don't know about in the universe. Mm. that we don't know about bump into it and mm-hmm. make it act differently. Mm-hmm. Um, is my explanation, but um, so I was looking for muon jokes. There are like 33 Higgs boson jokes, and there's only one muon joke. Do you know it? Okay, I'm going to you. Knock, knock. Who's there? The interrupting physicist. Interrupting physicist. Muon. <laughs> Jesse Dukes, thank you so much, and Brendan, thanks so much for playing. Tell me something I don't know. Great job. Can we give one more hand to all our contestants tonight who were phenomenal? Fantastic. It is time now for our panelists to pick a winner. Who told you something about getting there that you truly did not know? Something that's worth knowing and true. The panelists will use a ranked voting system. The contestant with the highest overall ranking will be tonight's winner, and then they'll join us back on stage later. All right, then, who will it be? Brendan Keyberg with How to Move a Mammoth Muon Magnet, Karen Smilowitz with How to Make a Fast Marathon, Vinit Aurora with the Caffeine-Powered Power Nap, Kathleen McCarthy with the High-Flying Picards, or Malcolm McIver with Giving Evolution the Fish Eye. While the votes are being cast, let me ask you a favor. If you enjoy Tell Me Something I Don't Know, please spread the word. Maybe give it a nice rating on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you very much. Okay, the panelists' votes are in. Once again, thanks to all our contestants tonight's winner with her IDK about the caffeine-powered power nap, Vanita Aurora. Congratulations. That is some news you can use. Vineet, you'll come back on stage later to face one of our panelists in the final round of Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Which one will you face? We will find out right after this break. Welcome back. It is time now for one of our very favorite parts of the show when our panelists... Ginger Evans, Che Reimfest-Smith, and Mary Catherine Curran will answer some lightning round questions that have been written especially for them. Our live audience will then pick their favorite, and that panelist will face our audience winner in the final round. So Ginger Evans, transportation wizard, we're going to start with you, okay? In, let's say, 30 seconds or less, tell us something amazing we don't know about O'Hare Airport. 
it is more frequent than you realize that a pilot does what we call a go around. So you're almost to land, and next thing you know, the pilot's accelerating, and you are off to the races, and you're doing a go around. It has, it's normal, but uh, it's something that most people don't realize happens every day. And does it happen because all planes are um, required to be late at O'Hare? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, tell us something we don't know about the man for whom O'Hare is named. We had a 75th anniversary for that uh, very recently, and the, and the mayor told an interesting story, which was this is the, the, the most famous uh, aviator uh, in World War II. Shot down all these Japanese planes, uh, saved uh, one of our uh, the, uh, important battleships single-handedly. But that wasn't the most uh, important thing, that he comes home, his service is over. He signed up again, flew more missions, and was tragically lost uh, at sea. Mm. Um, when will we get Uber for airplanes? <laughs> Never. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Never. Uh, there, there have been some some people tried uh, some short scheduled, you know, uh, kind of a taxi type air, air services. Very difficult uh, commercially, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it's it's a complicated business. Every, everything has to be perfect. A lot of training. A lot of rules and regulations, and quite frankly, our, our airspace is pretty darn congested. Mm. I think we'll, we'll leave things with the licensed pilots. All right. uh, as we heard, you helped create the TSA, which everyone here loves, um, especially <laughs> the uh, erotic pat-downs. So what is, your, uh, what is your least favorite TSA rule or procedure? I have to say, they, they do a pretty good job. I think uh, um, there, there is a reason for they're doing what they're doing. Um, I will tell you the three ounce thing never made sense to me. And I'll tell you a secret. I never did it. Uh, I never took my shampoo out ever. And they never took it away ever. Oh. All right. One last question for you, Ginger. Um, as a farm kid, we know that you drove tractors and hay balers. You also, it says here, went water skiing in an irrigation ditch towed by a pickup truck. So my question for you is, how many fingers and toes do you still have? <laughs> All of them. You, you have to have the pickup driven by someone that you, you have a lot of control <laughs> over, like your little brother. Uh, uh, but uh, we, we, did, we, did, we did learn how to make our own fun. No, no question about it. Ginger Evans, thank you so much. Great job. <laughs> On now to our next panelist, the Renaissance man, Che Reimfest-Smith. You ready? Yes, sir. All right. Chicago is a great town because blank. Mm, because it's the home of the blues. Ah. It, because it's the house of house music. Mm. Because Chicago is where character is built for those who conquer the world. Shay, if you could tell the commissioner of aviation what you really think about Chicago's airports, what would you say? <laughs> well, I wrote a rap here, and I'd rather just say my rap. I'd love to hear your rap. So it's just, I, I say, everybody loves a fact checker. Jesse Dukes shooting more truth than North Korea got nukes with MacIver, the amphibian diver. Kathy told us how to put cards that took us higher. Vanit, so unique, showing me how to sleep. I got every answer wrong. That means I didn't cheat. <laughs> Karen taught us how to run a trial, just puke and die. <laughs> Brendan gave me a magnet and it could barely fly. 
I love the show, I love the show, but please, man, tell me something that I don't know. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> Give him the Tony. So, yeah. Let him EGOT. There you go. Uh, so we had some more questions, but we can't beat that. But there's one <laughs> question that I so badly... Oh, I thought I beat all the questions that way, but... <laughs> There's one question I so badly need to know the answer to that I just need to ask you. Uh, who's crazier, Alec Baldwin or Kanye West? <laughs> Alec is a comedian, so he gets a pass. Yeah, yeah. Kanye is serious, so he's just an ass. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's harsh. <laughs> Nicely done, Chase Smith. Beautifully done. On now our final panelist, the comedian Mary Catherine Curran. All right, here we go. Uh -oh. In 10 seconds or less, let's say, describe a day in the life of an improv comedian. Um, working your job that you hate and then doing shows for free. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are. But here yeah, we are. But here we are. Making <laughs> laughter is my money, and it's hard to pay my rent. Mm. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Um, you worked on a cruise ship for four months. I did. It says here that every night you performed Proud Mary, so let's hear it. Oh, um, I did a lot of Tina moves. <laughs> <laughs> so just imagine that it's just like I'm doing that. Because uh, we'd always, get, when we'd get to the breakdown, I would always really go very hard where I'd just be like, hell, that's a good job in the city. <laughs> Working for the man every night and day. And I never lost one minute of sleep and worry about the way things might have been. Big wheel, keep on turning. Oh, oh. Round there, keep on burning. And we're rolling. 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 Rolling on the river. Oh, my goodness. Nicely done, Mary Catherine Curran. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> This is going to be a very tough vote tonight. It's time now to pick uh, just one panelist uh, to face our contestant winner in the final round. Tell me something I don't know. The audience will vote. So who's it going to be? Ginger Evans, Che Reinfest-Smith, or Mary Catherine Curran? Audience, would you please take out your phones and you will follow the texting instructions on the screen. <laughs> the audience votes have been tallied. And our panelist winner tonight, Mr. Che Reimfest-Smith. Congratulations. That was a fantastic lightning round, all three of you. And I think uh, the three panelists have been just great tonight. So thank you so much. And now let's bring our audience winner, Benit Aurora, back on stage, please, to face Che. Our final round, Che and Benit. It's very simple. In a moment, we will reveal a topic that is related somehow to tonight's theme, getting there. And then the two of you will have just a minute to come up with something on the spot. No Googling, no audience help, just your own fertile brains to rely on. And in case you're tempted to make something up, remember, Jesse Duke's over here with the computer on fact-checking. All right, what is the final topic? As anyone knows, if you've ever tried to get somewhere from A to B, you've gotten lost. We've all gotten lost at some point. So tell us something we don't know about getting lost. It might be a personal experience. Use your imagination. We'll give you a minute. Good luck. 
While our finalists are thinking, let me remind you, please, to visit tmsidk.com to get tickets to upcoming shows or, even better, sign up to be a contestant. As you can tell when you listen to this podcast, our contestants are the real stars of this show. If you feel you've got something to share, something worth knowing, and something true, please go to tmsidk.com to sign up. All right, Che and Vineet, it's time. You will tell us something we don't know about getting lost. Che, you first. Yes, I remember that uh, I I did a show in Israel, and I decided to cross over the (laughs) border to the Palestinian territory, Mm -hmm. and I got lost in Palestine. And uh, I was asking people which way to the gate to to get out (laughs) the checkpoint, and no one spoke English. And the sun started to go down, and I started to say, God, don't let me die here. And... (laughs) As I, as, I, as I walked around, I went into various stores. A young man told me, he spoke English, he was about 12 or 13, and I said, look, I'm trying to look for the checkpoint. He said, that'll be 300 shekels. So I gave him 300 shekels. He said, left, right, left, right, straight, go that way. And I got lost again. And I went into a store, and I, and I, I was crying at this point. And I asked the, the, the shopkeeper, I said, please. And he said, where are you from? I said, Chicago. He said, brother, I went to the University of Chicago. What the hell are you doing here? He shut the shop down and took me to the checkpoint. And that's when I learned educated people live all around the world. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Nicely done, Shay Smith, finding another Chicagoan in a strange place. Vanit Aurora, your turn. What do you got for us? Um, yeah, so I am married and um, do drive quite a bit with my husband and have noticed that sometimes the driver who took the directions um, is reluctant to admit that they're lost. <laughs> and so um, what I have come to realize from research done at the University of Chicago uh, is that there is this, these communication psychology miscommunication problems. We do not like the way we deal with uncertainty. And so you often don't want to admit that you're wrong. You would rather rewrite in your mind that, oh, I think it was a right, I think it was a left. Boaz, Kaiser, and I have studied this in research during doctor shift changes. And in doctor shift changes, what happens is that you're trying to empower the next doctor with everything you know. And, um, and the doctors, we ask them afterwards, we say, you know, um, you tell me you know, what, what you think the most important piece of information for that patient was, and then we compare the two. 60% of the time in optimal conditions, they're not able to name the most important piece of information. But the problem was that they kind of rewrote the uncertainty in their brain. And so when, instead of saying they didn't know, they would be like, you know, oh, I think I'm supposed to discharge the patient today, when in fact, they were supposed to keep the patient. And so we think that that might be a cause of some of the medical errors out Nicely there. Nicely done, really good. All right, it is time now for our live audience to pick a winner, this time by a simple throat vote. Now, remember the criteria. Was it something you did not know? Was it something worth knowing, and was it demonstrably true? Okay, so make some noise, please, first for Che Reimfest-Smith. Very respectable. And now for Vineet Arora.
Our winner tonight is Vinny Aurora. Thank Congratulations. You. Great job. Now, Vinny, let me ask you this. What prize could we possibly give you that's commensurate with your performance tonight? Well, do you remember back at the top of the show when the economist Max Roser told us about the huge gains in global prosperity, but especially in literacy? In 1800, maybe nine out of 10 people in the world were illiterate. And now in the latest data, we see eight out of 10 people are able to read and write. But that still leaves too many people not being able to read and write, even in the U.S., especially low-income kids. Now, one of the organizations trying to help is the Children's Literacy Initiative. So, Vineet, tell me something I don't know. We'll make a $250 donation in your name oh, to the awesome. Children's Literacy Initiative. Thanks for Thank that. You. And congratulations Thank you. again. That's great. And that is our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you did not know about getting there. Huge thanks to our panelists, Ginger Evans, Che Reinfest-Smith, and Mary Kathleen Curran. To our fact checker, Jesse Dukes. To our awesome contestants. And thanks especially to you for coming to play Tell Me Something. And next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know, we are in Boston to talk about medical matters. Our panelists, Harvard Medical School professor Bapu Jenna, New England Revolution head trainer Evan Allen, and the comedian Christine Hurley. What would be the most unappetizing way to defend ourselves? Unappetizing cannibalism? <laughs> oh, that's actually an appetizing way. That's next time on Tell Me Something I Don't Know. Tell Me Something I Don't Know is produced by Dubner Productions in association with Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Hockenberry, Emma Morgenstern, Harry Huggins, Brian Gutierrez, Dan DeZula, and Rachel Jacobs. David Herman is our technical director. He also composed our theme music. Thanks also to our good friends at Qualtrics, whose online survey software has been so helpful in putting on this show. You can subscribe to Tell Me Something I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on TMSIDK.com. You can also listen without ads by signing up for Stitcher Premium at stitcherpremium.com slash tell me. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Couric here to tell you about a new episode of my podcast. My co-host, Brian Goldsmith, and I sat down with Mitch Landrew, the mayor of New Orleans. You might have heard his eloquent speech recently marking the removal of a Robert E. Lee statue in his hometown. It got a lot of attention. Do you get a lot of people angry on the streets, Frust yelling uh, at you? Very, what, what's the well, worst thing someone has all, said to you? Well, there's a beautiful park in New Orleans, I ride around on my bike every morning, and it is not uncommon for people in that park to yell at me, like, get out of this park. You're a dictator. We hate you. We hope that you've stopped being mayor tomorrow. We also talk about the surprising role of cities in the Trump era. Mayors across the country are really doing innovative things. We're learning from each other, and we're creating national policies from local action. To hear the episode, just search Katie Couric. You can subscribe now in Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts.